This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Thursday, March the 2nd, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Lori Fox from Willpower discusses their awareness campaign that encourages people to think differently about charitable giving. Brilliant from governments. Mary France Roche from the Stop Community Food Center will elaborate. You'll also catch up with Stephen Scott later in the program. Don Dickinson stops by and Jenny Bovard will be here as well. Jam-packed Thursday edition of the show. Here's your top story of the day. The head of Canada's spy agency is among the witnesses expected at a parliamentary committee studying allegations of foreign interference in elections. Laurie Paris looks ahead. Representatives from the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, the RCMP and Elections Canada will return to the House Affairs Committee, where some of them have testified before, while CSIS Director David Vigneault is set to appear for the first time. Yesterday, the committee heard from National Security Advisor Jody Thomas and members of a task force that provides government officials with information about possible threats to elections. At the meeting, New Democrat MP Peter Julian called for a public inquiry into foreign interference in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections, something the Bloc Québécois and Conservatives also want. Laurie Paris, the Canadian Press. Following up on a story that's been bubbling all week, a few Canadian provinces have joined the federal government in banning TikTok on government-issued devices. Saskatchewan, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia made their announcements yesterday. Quebec made the same decision on Tuesday. Michael McDonald has the Nova, so- Nova Scotia side of the story. The video-sharing platform has come under scrutiny because the Chinese government has a stake in its owner, ByteDance. As well, Chinese laws allow the state to demand access to TikTok's user database. Meanwhile, the Nova Scotia government says TikTok's data collection methods make users vulnerable to surveillance. The Quebec government imposed a ban Tuesday following a similar edict from Ottawa on Monday. And in the United States, all government agencies have been told they have 30 days to delete TikTok from federal devices. Michael McDonald, the Canadian Press, Halifax. Meanwhile, TikTok has some policies in place to limit screen time for young people. Mike Dubusky has that story. Hold on, you've been scrolling for way too long now. If you were under 18, you're now going to have to enter a passcode if you scroll on TikTok for more than an hour. TikTok says it forces teens to make an active decision to spend more time on the app, though it can be disabled. Screen time is just one of a number of troubles for the Chinese app at the moment. Federal employees have less than four weeks to delete it on their government phones over fears that it could be used for foreign influence campaigns or spying. TikTok's CEO is set to address all this on Capitol Hill later this month. Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Spending a bit more time south of the border, the U.S. government has a new cybersecurity plan. Reporter Jennifer King explains. 
The Biden administration has released details of an expanded cybersecurity strategy to expand the minimum requirements for critical sectors and work with Congress on legislation that would impose legal liability on software makers whose products fail to meet those minimums. A new White House fact sheet says the world's complex threat environment demands a more intentional, well-coordinated, and resourced approach to cyber defense, faster and more aggressive in preventing cyber attacks before they occur. Coming back to Canada, two more provinces have agreed to the federal health funding proposal. The deal in British Columbia is worth over $27 billion over the next 10 years. Saskatchewan will be receiving $6 billion over the next 10 years as well. BC Premier David Eby lays out where some of the money will go. Today is an important step forward on our shared journey with the federal government. It builds on the work our province has already done and will continue to do to strengthen health care. Building and improving hospitals, opening urgent primary care clinics, hiring thousands of nurses, implementing a new deal with family doctors, getting more internationally trained doctors and nurses into our hospital. There's so much more work to do and more to come. Saskatchewan Health Minister Paul Merriman believes the federal government could still do more. It isn't enough. Uh, Premier Mo and all the premiers were united in saying that, but it's hard to turn down federal dollars. It's just not exactly the amount that we were looking for. Both deals come with an immediate injection of money to the provincial health systems. $61 million will be immediately injected into Saskatchewan, $273 million into British Columbia. While you're hearing about some health stories, the federal government has stopped shipping rapid COVID-19 tests to the provinces. Karen Rebo has that story. Ottawa has ordered over 811 million rapid tests since early 2020 at a cost of about $5 billion. Health Canada says federal inventories are robust with about 90 million tests still in stock, while supplies are also in the millions for the provinces and territories, and most aren't set to expire for two years. Experts say the once essential tool has lost its importance nearly three years since the onset of the pandemic. Anna Banerjee, an infectious disease specialist at the University of Toronto says the tests may also become less able to detect infections as the COVID virus changes. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Seeing as how I just shared a COVID-19 story, what is the current COVID landscape in Canada? There are currently 3,186 people in hospital with COVID-19. 163 people have died in the last week of COVID-19. That's your look at the news. Here are the daily polls. Yesterday, you were asked a question that I'm not surprised by the results at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. So the question today is the RRSP deadline for the 2022 tax year. Are you finding it difficult to save money? And explain why in the comments. Unsurprisingly, the answer was 100% yes and 0% no. Had some very thoughtful responses here on social media. Kendall writes in at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Yes, I'm a single dad on disability pension and I find it impossible in my situation at this time. I thought this 20 years ago when I was a working chef, but I was able to invest RESPs for my three children. I see the benefits of those investments and wish I could do this for my future. And James tweets in, by the end of the month, there is nothing to save for RDSP or RRSP unless you have some people in the same household to take up the burden. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Today's Daily Poll, 
This will be explored a bit with Jenny Bovard later on in this hour, talking about some of the investigation techniques using uh, DNA submitted to online services. So straight up, I'm asking you, would you ever submit your DNA to an online service? Yes, no, or I already have. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, it still baffles me in all the conversations that we have about privacy in the internet age and internet space, why anybody would give their DNA to a private corporation uh, to, to do a little bit of online research. I, I, I perhaps understand the, the underlying cause, which is I want to learn about my history. I want to learn about my family. I want to try and trace myself a little bit. But the idea that you're just going to give your DNA to a private corporation willy-nilly like that, preposterous. What are you doing? What are you thinking alex smythe what do you think yeah so dave there was probably once upon a time where i would have maybe considered doing it but you know you you mentioned it in the age of online security and the fact that now we are in a space where we are so hyper vigilant of what information we are providing to whom it, it is uh it's a definite no for me like d your dna is literally the most i think uh just precious information that you have about yourself that it's literally the foundation and it's your genetic makeup why would you want to give that away for free to someone else so they could have it and you you would have no control over where that information went what they did with it outside of you know testing your genealogy and then of course too there's also the questions on how even like legitimate that is the results that you end up getting if they are truly uh being properly sourced and checked but yeah for me no at this day and age i have no interest in giving away my dna to anyone willingly especially a corporation that you know you you don't fully know where where your information your dna is and data is going to be stored or where who it's going to be shared with so i want to protect as much of my identity and my uh personal information as possible this is an easy way to avoid doing anything like it alex there's a scenario where i can envision the possibility where i would give up my dna but it would not be to an online service let's say i was dealing with some kind of rare condition or a rare disease mm -hmm. and a medical professional said it's hey we'd like to do some genetic testing with you and your family to see if we can trace this there's a scenario where yes i would consider giving it up but even then there would have to be a moment of consideration where would you land on something like that well, I, I so that is a very different thing for me. I have done that, but that is not an online service. That is yeah. done through medical <laughs> professionals, yeah. and 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 I've I've filled out a lot of waivers and information about okay how my my genetic information is going to be used. I uh, so with my condition, it's it's a genetic condition. I I've had to go through genetic testing. I had to have the gene mutations identified and studied. Like it, my my. Uh, um, my dean uh, my my dna was actually sent over to harvard at one point to, to do the uh, research and identification in uh formulating what mutations are causing my genetic uh, uh disorder so in that regard i've done it i have no problem with it because it's being handled by science and professionals in a medical in, in environment i have a lot more faith and there's a lot more guardrails around that just giving it to an online uh, uh, uh website or platform yeah, no, thank you. No, I'm not in favor of that. But for medical research that could potentially help me or, you know, someone else in my family or someone else in a similar position, 
100% I'm willing to do that. Yeah, it's especially easier when it's those nerds at Harvard getting your DNA, not those <laughs> uh, not those uh, dum-dums at Florida State. Uh, Alex, thank you for this. At Accessible Media is where you vote on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on Facebook. That's the polls for the day. We'll revisit the topic with Jenny Bovard in about, ooh, let's say 40 minutes or so. But for now, let's go back to Alex, who has the national weather updates. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada, starting off in St. John's, Newfoundland. It's mainly Sunday today, but there are wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is minus 5, but with those strong winds, the wind chill feels like minus 22. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it is a mix of sun and clouds this morning, but then there is going to be snow starting this afternoon, and up to 30 centimeters of snow is expected over the next day or so. There is a winter storm warning in effect, and the high is 1 degree today. In Montreal, Quebec, it's snow as well in the area, and there's also possible freezing rain. Up to 4 centimeters is expected to fall today. The high is also 1 degree. To Ottawa, Ontario, getting the tail end of that uh, storm. It's freezing rain and snow off and on today. The high is 2 degrees, feeling like minus 6 with that wind chill. In Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of snow or freezing rain. The high is 5 degrees, but there is a slight wind chill that makes it feel like minus 6. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it is mainly sunny today. The high is minus 6, but feeling like minus 21 with that wind chill. The sunshine continues as we make our way west over to Winnipeg, Manitoba. It's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds later in the afternoon. There's wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, but it is quite cool. The temperature, the high is minus 7, but with that wind chill makes it feel like minus 29. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it is mainly sunny today. The high is zero degrees, but with that wind chill again, it's quite cool. It makes it feel like minus 19. In Calgary, Alberta, there is a mix of sun and clouds today with a chance of snow in the afternoon, but the high is four degrees, so it's quite pleasant and uh, temperature wise. Up in Edmonton, Alberta, it's cloudy with uh, the clouds clearing out in the morning, making their way for sunshine in the afternoon. Wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is six degrees, but with that wind chill, it makes it feel like minus 12. Over to Yellowknife Northwest Territories, it's cloudy with snow starting in the morning and there's up to two centimeters expected to fall. Wind gusts also in the forecast, uh, 50 kilometer per hour wind gusts expected. The high is minus 13, feeling closer to minus 25. To Vancouver, BC, where there's periods of rain and snow off and on today, there's also a risk of thunderstorms later in the day but the high is seven degrees. And finally in Victoria, BC, there's rain this morning, then it's gonna be a mix of sun and clouds and more possible rain in the afternoon. Wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, but the high is eight degrees today. And that's our AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up after the break, there's a new awareness campaign called Willpower that encourages you to think differently about charitable giving. Lori Fox will tell you all about it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. The Willpower Awareness Campaign is encouraging people to think differently about charitable giving, specifically how you might continue to donate to a charity after you pass away. Lori Fox is the director of the campaign and is here to tell you a little bit more about it. Hey, good morning, Lori. Thank you for making the time today. Thanks for having me. So, Lori, I'll pull back the curtain a little bit. I I saw the press release come across the wire earlier this week about the campaign, and it really jumped off the page to me because it's something that I'd never considered, the possibility of donating to charities after I pass away. Why was this something that you and your colleagues really wanted to put on the forefront of people's minds? You know, what's interesting. We're all, uh, when we think about our charities, when we think about contributing to our charities, We really think about doing so from the cash that we have available, the cash on hand. But I think few Canadians realize that they can make a really big impact by giving from their estate. If you think about your estate, you know, your home, your investments, your savings, that's a big chunk of change. So even one or 2% of that can be a huge gift which is a smart way to just continue your contribution to charity. Not to mention the fact that it's really meaningful to continue to have your impact continue for generations to come. What does the landscape look like currently in terms of people making the decision to utilize their estates for charitable giving? It's becoming increasingly popular. You know, as you saw from that press release, in just three years time, 1.2 million more Canadians have left a gift in their will. We've gone from 5% of Canadians doing it in 2019 to 8% of Canadians doing it now. So it's becoming increasingly popular by leaps and bounds. Even though there's a popularity, I imagine there are still some people who are reluctant. Why do you think they have that reluctance? If I could freestyle or brainstorm for a second, as I rapidly approach my mid-age crisis, there's also my own existential crisis that exists. Is it possible that people maybe just don't want to think about their own own demise? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's definitely a possibility. A lot of people like to put off their will writing and thinking about their estates because they just don't want to think about that decision. Not to mention the fact that you know it does require a little bit of thought with about what you want to do um, with your estate. But actually, probably one of the biggest reasons people don't think about leaving a gift in their will to charity is because they believe it takes away from their loved ones. Of course, you want to support your children, your your parents, your family, your friends um, with your estate. But, you know, also leaving a gift to a cause you care about can help you make this really big impact. And like I said earlier, it can be 1% to charity, meaning that you still have 99% to leave to your loved ones. Mm. What are some things that someone should be mindful of if they want to be used, utilizing their estate planning for charitable giving? So um, there are a few things that um, you might think about when you're leaving your estate to charity. One is choosing your charity, of course. Um, people typically have you know, two or three charities that they really care about and have been investing in for a long period of time. And those are really the charities that you probably want to make this really meaningful contribution to. But the second is the way that you want to make your donation. And there are several ways that you can do it. You can make a gift in your will, but you can also name a charity as a beneficiary on your registered funds, like your RSP, or if you have life insurance, for example. Mm. And there's actually a lot of tax benefits to, to giving in this way. 
So there are some strategies here, and this is a public mm -hmm. awareness campaign. I I'm curious on the professional side, estate planners, lawyers, etc. How equipped are they to offer this kind of advice to people as they're doing their estate planning? Has this become more commonplace as an industry understanding? You know, it's becoming more commonplace, but I will say that there is a, a kind of a niche group of financial advisors and lawyers who know um, and are aware of uh, how to be most strategic, strategic when uh, leaving a gift in your will to charity. And if you go on our website, willpower.ca, you'll find um, financial advisors in your area, lawyers and notaries in your area, online will services, they're specifically kind of trained in this area. Mm. It, this is certainly, as as the campaign is trying to do, a, a different way of thinking about charitable mm -hmm. giving. It, it really feels like, in general, over the course of the last couple of years, there's been an evolution in the way we think about a lot of things. How, yeah. how do you think there's been an evolution in the way that people think about giving back to the community more broadly? You know, that's a good question, Dave. Um, I think... People, I think there's a few things that are changing. I think, you know, the pandemic um, and economic stability has really hurt people's pocketbooks. Um, and I think as a result, they've um, had to cut back on the amount that they're giving to charity. And so they're looking at more strategic ways to give, like giving a gift in your will, for example. And I think they're also, you know, we've had a lot of, you know, uh, world disturbances, you can say. So I think they're also kind of looking in their community about how they can make a direct impact as well as abroad. I think there's this kind of interest in, um, you know, seeing the tangible results that you're giving. Lori, this is a really interesting idea and certainly we're encouraging people to uh, check this out. Where should they go to find out more information? They go to willpower.ca on our website. They've got, we've got a legacy calculator where they can actually see how much you know, one or two percent of their estate can be to charity and how much can be left to loved ones, as well as charities uh, in the campaign that um, they can find out what their gift would would do with uh, with those charities. Lori, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you this morning, even if you've made me consider my own demise a little bit more <laughs> here. All the best to you and your colleagues as the campaign continues. I hope you uh, turn a lot of heads. Thank you so much, Dave. Have a great day. That's Lori Fox, director of the Willpower Campaign. You can learn more, like Lori said, at willpower.ca, willpower.ca. Coming up after the break, the conversation about charity continues. Volunteer organizations are facing very high expectations of resiliency from governments in a difficult time. Mary-France Roche from the Stop Community Food Centre will elaborate. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index kicked off March trading with a small gain on strong economic numbers out of China. Toronto's TSX index rose 38 points to close at 20,259. New York's Dow Jones average crept five points higher and the Nasdaq lost 76. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index slipped 17 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 73.5 cents US. Canada's Melanie Jolie is in New Delhi, India, meeting today with her fellow foreign 
affairs ministers of the group of 20 leading economies. The meetings are likely to be overshadowed, though, by Russia's war in Ukraine and its impact on global energy and food security. The CEO of energy infrastructure giant Enbridge, Inc., says he hopes the federal government will unveil more incentives for carbon capture and storage in the upcoming federal budget. Greg Ebel says the U.S. and its Inflation Reduction Act is currently a more attractive place for companies seeking to invest in carbon capture technology. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebeau. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. There are a ton of pressures on charities and not-for-profits these days. Volunteer organizations are being expected to show all kinds of resiliency, and that's a trouble. So here to elaborate on the issue is Marie-France Roche. Marie-France is the author of an opinion piece in the Toronto Star and the lead fundraiser for the Stop Community Food Center. Hey, Mary Frost, thank you for making time to be with us today and, and discuss this topic. I'm, I'm grateful. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So in this piece you wrote for the Toronto Star, you referred to something called the resilience narrative and saying this needs to stop. How would you describe the resilience narrative? Yeah, so the resilience narrative when it comes to charities, I think is really un underpinned by the expectation that charities will carry the weight of so many social issues that we are seeing today um, in, in society and especially in Canada. Um, for example, at Stop Community Food Centre, we're an anti-poverty organization and we are seeing in particular really, really heightened demand for emergency food access services when in fact, um, it's not only up to us to respond to the escalating demand and the increased need um, for these kinds of services. It's really up to also seeing these changes, seeing changes on um, a systemic or at a systemic level to really um, reduce poverty. And I'm not seeing that happen. How did this narrative become so prevalent? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think, you know, in particular, um, food banks were, were introduced back in the uh, early 1980s. The first food bank in Canada was actually in 1981. Um, so we were one of Canada's uh, first food banks in 1982, which is when uh, the STOP was founded. Um, and I think there has become sort of, um, I, I've heard the word institutionalized, that charities in particular and, and food banks have been institutionalized in our society. And I think, therefore, as a society, we've come to rely on charities to um, for for really social service provision, and mm. and social service provision should be coming from really a government level. Um, and and food banks in particular were never intended to be the long-term solution to hunger um, or to poverty. Um, they were supposed to be kind of a temporary measure um, to to support people um, and the hopes that then people would be able to support themselves with their, their own income, which is a much more dignified way to live and something that everyone should, should have access to. Everyone in Canada should be able to live a dignified life. This is a topic that, that we've been circling around a little bit over the course of the last couple of months as, as a few charities have come out and, and, and expressed a very similar concern saying there's just too much pressure going on right now. There's, there, there's, there's no opportunity for us to actually deliver the services that we have the capacity to deliver. So in your mind, what, what needs to change? What are the structural changes that need to occur? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So I think one of the big structural changes that needs to happen um, to start would be in, in Ontario increasing social assistance rates. So here at the stop, 
67% of our SURFs users rely on social assistance. Um, and so, so that means a lot of people who are receiving social assistance as their, their source of income are simply not able to meet their basic needs. They're not able to buy enough groceries for the month to sort of cover costs that will enable them to, to live their lives independently. So we need to increase those rates to ensure that they're aligned with the cost of living in each region. Um, I'd also like to see improved affordable housing. Um, mm. You know, housing is is really unaffordable and inaccessible in the city. Uh, we also need to think about food prices as well. We all know we've all seen our grocery pills, bills <laughs> increase uh, significantly. So there there are concerns there as well, um, and and that needs there needs to be intervention really at a systemic level to ensure people have the resources they need to live a dignified life. Um, you know. I heard someone say once, and I think this resonated with me, you know, people aren't asking for a lot. Um, they, they're they just trying to get by. And I think, you know, as, as a society in Canada, we can do that. We can make that happen. Um, but it can't be on the shoulders of charities. It's simply not sustainable. I, I don't mean for this conversation to turn so dark or, or so negative, but it is quite serious. And there was a food charity that closed its doors in Newfoundland and Labrador uh, not mm. long ago, but, but about a few days ago. And one of the things that, that they said was, we just can't do this anymore. It's too much pressure on us as individuals. And certainly people who work in the not-for-profit sector, the charitable sector, or volunteer in these sectors, they care passionately about what they do. But what happens when the passion can't keep the lights on? What happens to the people that, that they serve? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, that that's, it's really concerning. You know, I think um, the pandemic in particular put immense pressure on uh, social service organizations like the STOP, like food banks, um, to really sort of keep their doors open, to keep going despite all of the pressure and sort of the extreme circumstances that they were dealing with. And, you know, the the the, the need and, and extreme poverty was there before the pandemic. People were living very precariously, um, but I think the pandemic and then now the cost of living crisis, crisis inflation has only accelerated it and driven people um, to these services, but ultimately, you know, there there is concern that we we won't be able to to meet the meet the need eventually. You know, at the stop, we've seen um, an increase in visits in the last year to the food bank increased by ten percent, um, an increase in people served by seventeen percent, mm. and a huge influx in particular of new households. So since the start of the pandemic, um, comparing the start of the before the pandemic until now, we've seen a forty two percent increase in new households accessing our services. So this means there are people that might not have ever accessed food banks before needing emergency food services. And it's just simply not sustainable or a way to live. These people are not able to cover their basic needs. And they're also probably not building up any meaningful savings. Um, they're, they're you know, really leave, living paycheck to paycheck. Um, and as a society, it's just not sustainable. And as you said, you know, charities can't continue to bear the brunt of, of these, these escalating issues. Over the years, I've worked with a couple different charities. I've been on a couple fundraising boards. You describe that increase in demand on the on the center, and that means that more fundraising is required. And certainly, that's part of the work that you do. What are you noticing in regards to? And again, I, I don't mean to sort of to, to 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 premise this too much, but what are you noticing when you're reaching out to donors? Are you noticing some donor fatigue? Because when you describe this economic pressure that's impacting a lot of people, it must also be impacting donors as well. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. So for example, last year in our annual portfolio or annual giving portfolio, which would cover monthly giving and gifts sort of under $1,000, um, we noticed a $100,000 deficit. So we a shortfall. And this is because people are scaling back their giving. Mm -hmm. Understandably, they're seeing higher bills. They're, they're having, they have higher costs in their life. And so they're having to scale back um, their, their, their giving. Um, and then we're also seeing, uh, I work with major donors and keep a lot of those individuals would have um, their assets in, in stocks. Um, and so therefore those have declined as well in value. Mm. Um, and I think you, you, you pointed to something really important, which is donor fatigue. Um, we have been kind of at crisis level for, for years, you know, since the start of the pandemic, there's been this, you know, this perma crisis, basically, this is this new word that's been introduced. And I think it's a really good way to describe the situation that we're in right now. And I feel that we're constantly, you know, asking our donors to, to give more, um, to pay attention. And I know they're getting pulled in so many directions. And I will say they have been remarkable in responding to the crisis into, you know, really, um, supporting the stop um in in the in the time of greatest need um but this system doesn't it doesn't it shouldn't work this way we shouldn't be relying on the goodwill and benevolence of individual donors of volunteers and of, of charities it should really be at a systemic level to provide long-term solutions the piece you wrote in the Toronto Star was really well put. It was well written. It was well argued. It really resonated with a lot of people uh, on our staff as we were preparing. What kind of response have you received since it was published? Oh, um, well, first of all, thank you very much. I'm really happy that it that it resonated for people. Um, and I've been really pleased with the response to see how many people um, have just sort of uh, personally resonated as well, feel that, you know, if you're working at a social service organization and sort of the expectation that there are so many people who live in in poverty in the city who are perhaps have immigrated here, who are refugee, or refugees and they have had to um, overcome really um, unspeakable conditions to, and, and that's the expectation, you know, it's, or if you're living um, on social assistance, you're having to um, make ends meet with, with very, very little income. Mm. Um, and so I've been really, really happy to see to see that. And also um, at the sort of charity level as well, I've seen a lot of people respond who work for charity to say, thank you so much for saying this. And so I think it's it's on everyone's mind. I don't think it was necessarily um, a, a unique uh, unique thought or unique idea. I think everyone was thinking it. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy that it resonated for people. And I think um, as, as a charity sector, we, uh, as, as a sector as a whole, we need to start really calling out these systemic barriers um, that perpetuate uh, the very issues that we seek to address. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, something that uh, that we concur with over here as well. So oftentimes we talk about these, uh, I, I don't mean to be flippant in the way that it's a Band-Aid solution, but we're always talking about these these proposals that governments have. Oh, a little one-time funding here, a little make-work program yeah. there, as opposed to really grappling with the issues, right? Building affordable housing uh, to try and deal with some of the homelessness issues, trying people experiencing homelessness issues, trying to build food security, try to up up social assistance payments again this, this isn't rocket science it just takes yeah. a little bit of money yeah absolutely absolutely and i think you know the a report that was published uh i think it was a couple of months ago um and it used data from the daily bread food bank it was a university of calgary uh, public policy school report um and it showed really the the um 
I suppose, the connection between income and food bank usage. Um, and it was actually a remarkable report. So um, it, 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 a $15 increase in the Ontario Disability Support Program would lead to, lead to over 53,000 fewer visits to food banks in Toronto and to over 273,000 in Ontario. And then if you look at sort of the, the, the opposite, so a $30 increase in rent per month, would lead to over 73,000 more visits to food oh banks gosh. annually in Toronto. Um, and so when you think about those numbers from a perspective of a social service organization or a food bank in particular, you know, we can't deal with, with that increased demand, but a $30 per month increase in rent doesn't seem um, necessarily that unlikely. So yeah. there needs to be some intervention for sure. Mary France, where should people go if they want to learn more about the Stop Community Food Centre? Yeah, please go to our website. Uh, we actually just launched a new one, so it's looking very slick. Um, <laughs> and it's, so I'd love for people to check it out. I love your feedback. It's uh, www.thestop.org, and you can also follow us on socials as well. Mary France, thank you so much for making time to talk about this today. It's a really important issue. Thank you so much for having me. Mary France Roche is the lead fundraiser for the Stop Community Food Center, and like Mary France said, thestop.org, thestop.org to learn more. Coming up next, Jenny Bovard and I will explore some of the privacy and ethical concerns of using uh, DNA data to solve cold cases, specifically DNA gathered from online sources. But first, Elon Musk, you know him. He has a grand new vision for Tesla. Mike Dubusky tells you more in Tech Trends. It's called the Master Plan. Master Plan Part 3. It is the third Master Plan Musk has released since Tesla's founding, and basically it's a blueprint for the company's future, one that is not necessarily limited to cars. There is a clear path to a sustainable energy earth. Part of that calls for a $10 trillion investment into things like wind and solar power, technologies like heat pumps, and even sustainably powered planes and boats. But Wedbush Securities tech analyst Dan Ives says Tesla has at times struggled to deliver on promises. When Musk talks about some of the longer term visions, you know, some, a lot of that doesn't come to fruition in the near term. Which means for this master plan, I think you gotta take this all with a grain of salt. With tech I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. One of the emerging trends in law enforcement is authorities using genetic and DNA data from online sources to solve cold cases. There have been a few cases in Ontario where police have identified suspects they believe are responsible for murders that took place decades ago. The practice has also raised some ethical and privacy concerns. So Jenny Bovard is here to talk more about it. Hey, good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Dave. So Jenny, uh, you and I were circling this topic a couple weeks ago. We ran out of time, we didn't get to it, but you wanted to dive a little bit deeper into investigative genetic genealogy. Why did this kind of story jump off the page to you? Well, I am constantly taking in true crime podcasts and I, I follow crime in the news. So when these cold cases started um, to get solved, I thought, hey, wow, good news story. 
all good news stories. I didn't really think about any of the implications or the history around using DNA to solve crimes. But when we think about if we if we go back a little bit, that's really where my interest was peaked. And I went and did a little bit of digging. If you think about how we use DNA in the past, when DNA first came about, it's, it's still kind of new in terms of mm-hmm. solving crimes in general. But, you know, about 10 years ago, uh, up until 10 years ago, in order to solve a crime using DNA, your DNA had to be in a sort of criminal database already, right? You mm-hmm. had to be known to law enforcement. So the pool for DNA information was very limited up until about, uh, gosh, 10 years ago now, it's been since sites like uh, Ancestry.com and 23andMe were mm-hmm. launched. And now these sites have like, millions of DNA samples, millions of people are on these sites. And what that allows law enforcement to do now through investigative genetic genealogy, which is a pretty cool acronym, IgG, I don't know, it rolls off the tongue nicely. (laughs) It, It allows law enforcement to use DNA that's been preserved from crimes that happened in the past, cold cases, but also missing persons. It's helping to identify people who've gone missing. We've not been able to identify who they are. Um, and, and, and so now they have these millions and millions of DNA samples that can narrow down distant family members or even close relations to the DNA left at the scene of a crime, for example. So it allows us to narrow down the pool, but also to identify brand new suspects because Mm -hmm. we might not have known who the heck they were to begin with. Now, it's launched a huge trend across the United States, like over 400 cases have been solved to date. It's a really similar trend in Canada. One of the most notable cases that came to light in the news was um, the 2018 uh, arrest of the Golden State Killer mm-hmm. who terrorized California throughout the 70s and 80s. Uh, very violent, heinous crimes. And that crime was solved using family DNA through one of those websites. And and it gets it can get a little bit murky here because in the case of the Golden State Killer, in a lot of cases, the family members of the suspect were actually quite willing to give up some of that DNA because they had their own suspicions. But in some cases, uh, police, especially early on in this process, were sort of just sending out blank warrants to get access to a lot of this data. So it begs this question, although sometimes the outcomes are really positive solving cold cases is a good thing but there's also the other side that says is this an overreach especially again those early days when this was very unregulated getting sort of blank warrants to go through the data of some of these dna collection agencies is this an overreach or is it good detective work and i don't mean to force you into a binary jenny i know it's a difficult question uh, it, it is a difficult question, and it isn't for me. I mean, I think there's a constant need to question and scrutinize and hold accountable the people charged with protecting us as citizens, our law enforcement, our legal system. Um, and there, perhaps there was some taking advantage of a loophole or two for a period of time while this was not regulated. And it's still in the process of, we're still in the process of figuring out how the heck do we regulate this to begin with. In the early days, Ancestry.ca, 
23andMe.ca.com rather and 23andMe, they did not stipulate in explicit terms when you were signing up that your information might be used to, to solve crimes, to be given to law enforcement. And I think that's where the real issue is, is that people were not informed and they were not making an informed decision when they were giving this information to websites. Uh, but here's the thing is like your information doesn't even need to be on a website to 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 unfortunately have a family member who's involved in a in a violent crime and and then it circles back to you there are tons of ways for law enforcement to acquire your dna um but i mean it's obviously something that needs to be regulated my dna your dna sensitive information there are so many things that that could be done nefariously if some the wrong people were to get a hold of it yeah. so i think it's important that now we know when we sign on to these websites what we're signing off on and uh, you know un unfortunately it is true that some people have had their lives negatively affected because a family member whether it's someone they know or not even whether someone they knew they were related to or not can you imagine getting that call that hey we think someone in your family is a suspect in a violent crime mm -hmm. that doesn't go that doesn't go over well for for anyone i would imagine but if it i would be angry at the family member and and not at the law enforcement yeah that's my takeaway oh yeah yeah, yeah. like again i i think it's really important here that like we kind of separate outcomes from process because sometimes outcomes are are more important than process but you have to be very careful, as you say, there needs to be an accountability to the people who are utilizing this technology, utilizing this science. And that's where a lot of these privacy and ethical concerns come up. And that relates to the daily poll question of the day, which uh, we've put up at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Would you ever give your genetic data, your DNA data to an online service? Yes, no, or I already have. Jenny, I vehemently in the first segment of the show said, absolutely not. Like I, like I am someone who who is very cognizant of the privacy concerns and data sharing that exists in the world of social media. And I'm willing to make some compromises here and there, but my data and DNA, like my DNA data, my genetic data, not a chance. I personally, I I have nothing to hide. I don't, I, and, and not that you have something to hide, Dave. Well, you never know, Jenny, <laughs> you just... never know. I, I don't know what it is, but I when I signed up for, for 23andMe, which I did years ago, I'm an, an adoptee, and so I had a lot of curiosities about my genetics, and, and, and that was the real driver for me. So I don't recall when I signed up whether or not that stipulation was there about sharing with law enforcement or not, and that that's only one way we hear about so many privacy breaches in the news these days, right? I can only imagine what on earth someone would want with my DNA though? I, I, I'm not scared of, I guess, the ramifications. Perhaps I should be more, but I knew as soon as I submitted, I spit in that tube and mailed my yeah. DNA in, Dave. I was like, that's it, no crimes for me. I can't yeah. be committing any crimes now. They got me, you know? And and that's the thing, right? What, I don't know, I, I think, you're you're you make a really good point but what would someone want with my dna but, is kind of where my mind goes you know jenny you make a really good point too and it's one that i definitely acknowledge there's a curiosity about where we come from especially for you and i who both have genetic conditions it would be interesting to learn a little bit more about where the albinism was rooted from so i i, I definitely see the point you're making and if this isn't too much and if, if it is you can just say dave move on shut up 
What did you? It's rarely too much. Okay. <laughs> what, oh, and by the way, I, I know what someone would do with your DNA. They'd make more Jenny Bovards, and the world could use more Jenny Bovards. Oh, nobody needs but, any of that. <laughs> but but what what did you actually learn? What did you learn through this through that process? Again, if that's not too much. Well, I was able to learn that I uh, mainly geographically where my family comes from. Um, I, I haven't had any major revelations. I know that my albinism comes from uh, com comes from uh, my mother's side of the family, and I did, do have a little bit of information that I've acquired just from having conversations with my biological family. But it's been limited, so it was really nice to be able to go and explore geographically. Mm. where my genes come from and it was so funny when I visited Ireland and I was on the um, the Atlantic coast in, in Ireland they still burn peat over there to heat their homes and I and and I just loved the smell and I felt so at home and it was the weirdest thing but that smell just is one of the biggest memories I took away and come to find out that my family originates right from, from that area oh, wow. in, uh, in County Mayo oh. in Ireland. And I was like, that's just the weirdest thing. But that can be meaningful in itself too, I think. Yeah, okay, well, see, Jenny, this is this is why we have these conversations because you get to expand my mind and we get to learn things and maybe uh, break away some of the built-in biases and, and premises that I have uh, in my mind and heart. Jenny, but you're not spitting into a tube anytime soon. New, new, new. New, new, new. Uh, Jenny, before we say goodbye to you, I need your take on something. And we're going to bring in Alex Smythe for this one as well. It's a conversation that we were having yesterday on the show about Canadian music. Alex, you set up the story here about the Nickelback exhibit in Calgary. Yeah, so uh, Nickelback is uh, being honored with the uh, induction into the Canadian uh, Music Hall of Fame. And as part of this induction, the uh, uh, National uh, Music uh, Center is putting on a a like year-long exhibit display of Nickelback and all their their music, the accolades, you know, uh, artifacts from from their careers. And I it got me thinking. It's like, okay, well. What band would you want to see a museum exhibit or or a shrine or or more elaboration on to get kind of mm -hmm. the back uh, kind of backstories and all the nitty gritties of of this band? Because for me personally, Nickelback, there's nothing too interesting <laughs> or unique or novel about their story that you want to go check out an exhibit for. But there's other musical acts and bands out there, especially Canadian ones that. There's a long history there, uh, Jenny. So I want to find out from you, like, is there a band or or a musician that you would want to see an exhibit or Wait, or museum? Hold, hold on, Jenny. Hold on, Alex. You okay. have to. You have to got something no, to no, say. no, Alex. You have to. You have to give her. You have to give her <laughs> your answer first. Okay. Okay. So so uh, for context, my answer uh, yesterday was the band Rush. I I think you know they are such an iconic band. They are a musicians band as they've always been labeled. <laughs> I mean, they are number five. Uh, top selling or, or longest stretch of gold and platinum records for any rock band behind the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Aerosmith and Kiss, which are all like, you know, titans of rock. And Rush always seems like they never got that that attention, but they're, they've had a like 40 plus year career. Their story is fascinating. The characters of the musicians are fascinating. So I felt there was a lot of history that you could explore there. So, so there we go. Jenny, what's your take? 
<sighs> I have a lot to say. I don't know how long we have, but Jenna, uh, take, take, as, all, take as much say... take as much time as you want. Yeah. Okay. First of all, I think I think Nickelback gets a lot of sh hate, a lot of shade. Um, you know, and I've I've said a thing or two about Nickelback <laughs> in in my day, but. I will say, you know, I think if I had free tickets to Nickelback, I would go. Whereas there are some acts where I'd be like, no, I'll sell those and I won't go. <laughs> um, Nickelback can, I'm sure, put on a show. They can write and perform a song. They, they've got the hooks, right? You've got to admit stuff is catchy. You hear it on the radio. You know the words. You know the words. Never a bummer. See? I'm making it as a blind woman. So anyway, um, you you just, you got to give them props. And I learned something interesting. They're huge in Europe. People love Nickelback <laughs> in Europe. They are huge. And I'm sure there are, you know, equivalent numbers of Rush fans in you know, Europe. You know, Jenny in, Euro in, Jenny, Jenny, in Europe, they're actually called quarterback. Yeah. <laughs> So all I'm trying to say is, I, you know, I can see how we can latch on to this and be like, oh, Nickelback, you know, what have they done that's so special <laughs> compared to Rush or the Tragically Hip or the Guess Who or, you know, any other number of Canadian musicians. Joni Mitchell's got enough. She's got enough awards and recognition. She just got some other award. But... I think there are a lot of years to come where we can include other musicians and other bands. And I'm with you with Rush. Rush deserves all the love. Neil Peart, we could just do Neil Peart. Am I saying it right? Yeah, you Peart. got it. You got it. Um, yeah. You know, we could, it could just be him. You know, let's pay homage. Um, but yeah, I don't feel super strongly. I think there's room for everyone, I think is my answer. <laughs> so so I heard about a really special feature at this Nickelback exhibit that every time you look at a photograph, if someone sings out, look at this photograph. <laughs> um, I'll stop it with my Chad Kroger impression and my terrible puns. Uh, so the argument that I made to Alex's question yesterday is that uh, I would I would build a museum in Toronto to Our Lady Peace. I believe they're almost underrated in their contribution to the Canadian alternative rock scene in the late 90s because they were massive and they're Canadian icons. But I would actually go a step further and maybe even build an entire museum to the 90s can rock movement. Think about bands like Moist, The Tea Party, Our Lady Peace, I'm Mother Earth. I, I'm missing some because I'm going right off the top of my head here. Uh, are Stone Temple Pilots Canadian? No, no, they are American. Oh, sorry. They are American. Well, and then you can also go into the alternative rock scene with like, you know, um, a simple plan and all those. Some 41. Some, some 41, yeah. Yeah. Can we get Eric Strip in there? Sure. Eric Strip. <laughs> Who, who's Eric Strip? With their little... Um, well, they're they're a, a fantastic band from the East Coast. They had, I think, they were on Sub Pop Records, if I'm not mistaken. But oh, okay. they they had a really great MTV Unplugged uh, gig that really sort of shot them up to stardom. They're okay. from my they're from my hometown, but check them out. There they're they're a bit of an acquired taste, but they had a big impact in that sort of Sub Pop. All right, scene. let's let's build this museum. Let's go. Yeah. it's done. All right, let's get it. Let's get her moving. Uh, there's room for everyone, guys. There is yep. room for everyone, <laughs> but unfortunately, there's no more time for you jenny jenny thank you for this have a great day pleasure you too that's jenny bovard the host of the low vision moments podcast alex Smythe will be back after the break with the national weather update i'll be back with the regional news update and brock richardson has more trades to talk about from the nhl trade deadline in the sports chat this is now with dave brown on ami tv
Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.